0: At our prayer service this last Wednesday night, Pastor Justin pointed out that sometimes people look at the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, and they think that they're looking at two different gods, or maybe that God has kind of changed from Old Testament to New Testament. And so people look at the God of the Old Testament and they'll think, wow, that's kind of like an angry, vindictive, kind of violent and judgmental God. A lot of blood shed in the Old Testament. He kind of seems like God in a bad mood. And then all of a sudden you get to the New Testament and God's revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And and people will think now God is loving and God is kind and God is merciful and God is forgiving. And so they imagine that God realized that his tough guy persona was turning people away from him. And he decided that he should spend a little time on self-care and try again with a new and improved attitude. Of course, as Christians, we know that nothing could be further from the truth. As Christians, we know that there is only one God, and there's always only been one God. And as Christians, we know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? God does not change. And so from Genesis to Revelation, we're not dealing with a evolution in the Godhead. We're not dealing with multiple gods. We're dealing with one true and living God who reveals his character in all of its fullness in both Old and New Testament. And Psalm 36 helps to reinforce that idea because now we're smack dab in the middle of the Old Testament and the theme of Psalm 36 is not God the judge. The theme of Psalm 36 is God's amazing love. It's a beautiful, beautiful psalm. Oftentimes in the psalms, we have a contrast between the character of the wicked and the character of the righteous. We see that in a lot of places. Psalm 1 famously depicts the character of the wicked or the ungodly and the character of the righteous or the godly. But one of the unique features of Psalm 36 is that Psalm 36 is a contrast between the character of the wicked and not the character of the righteous, but the character of God himself. And it's beautiful, and it's a little bit surprising as a psalm. Whereas the character of the wicked is self-focused and destructive and suffocating, what we find in this psalm is that the character of God is life-giving and expansive. God's character is beautiful and attractive. I titled today's sermon, The Precious Love of God. Obviously, you see where I get that in the text. The precious love of God now David here begins this psalm with a meditation on the character of the wicked this is in verses 1 through 4 so he helps us to understand the character of the wicked or the ungodly here's again what verse 1 says transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart there is no fear of God before his eyes Now, there's lots of debate about the right way to translate the awkward Hebrew of the first part of verse 1. The ESV, which we're reading out of, translates it that transgression speaks to the wicked. So the translators of the English Standard Version are taking transgression and personifying it. Transgression can actually speak like a human being, and transgression here is speaking to the wicked. The New International Version renders the beginning of verse 1 this way, I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. So the speaker is David, and he's got a message or an oracle from God that he wants to speak about the wicked. Well, either way, what we know is that we're talking about, in verse 1, the sinfulness of the wicked, of ungodly people. And what's most important in, in verse one is the second half of it. And there's no debate about what's being said there. It's crystal clear. And it shows us the fundamental issue of the ungodly. The second part of verse one shows us the root problem, the fundamental issue, and here it is. Are you ready for it? They don't fear God. So if we can, if we can characterize the ungodly according to the old testament it is this that they do not fear god they don't regard god as god they don't take god seriously they don't they don't uh, deal with the fact that god is real and he is present and he is powerful and he is active in the world right now let me say it differently they treat god as irrelevant this is the root issue this is the fundamental problem and this orientation of heart a heart that says either god is not there or god does not care that sort of a heart is a cesspool for foolishness and sin this is where that is born out of because proverbs teaches us here's proverbs 1 7 That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom. So that's the starting point if I want to understand God, if I want to understand myself, if I want to understand the world, if I want to understand right and wrong. The starting point for that knowledge and that wisdom is a proper orientation of heart toward God. I don't treat God like he's irrelevant. I treat God like he's real, he's present, he's powerful, and he's in charge. That's what it looks like to fear God. And that is the basis by which a person has knowledge and wisdom. And if that's true, and everybody say it is. is. If that's true and it is, then the inversion of that is true. That the lack of fearing God is the beginning of foolishness and sinfulness. This is where it comes from. Again, it's an orientation of heart that says, I have no regard for God. God is not relevant. God is not important. I don't need him. Now, verse 2 is very significant because it's going to explain why lacking fear of God is the beginning of foolishness and sin. Look at verse 2 again. David says, For he flatters himself in his own eyes, that his iniquity cannot be found out. And hated. What he's saying is that the ungodly person is wise in their own eyes. They flatter themselves in their own eyes. They're wise in their own eyes. The wicked person, she thinks that she has the capacity to understand the world and to determine what is best and to know what is right and wrong, good and evil on her own. She's wise in her own eyes. She thinks she has the ability, or he thinks he has the ability, to figure this out quite independent of God. I don't need a standard outside of myself. I can figure it out alone. And David says that, in fact, that kind of a person cannot find iniquity and hate it now this is a very proud perspective a very arrogant perspective the person who thinks that they don't need God to understand life and the world around us that they can just figure it out on their own and this pride blinds a person to their own sinfulness Now here in the ESV, verse 2, the second part of it says that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The NIV translates it too much to detect or hate their sin. So the person who is wise in their own opinion, the person who does not fear God is unable to detect their own sin or hate it. And here's the reason why. When you have no fear of God, then you are cut off from any authoritative measure of morality. You are left to your own limited knowledge to determine what is right and wrong. And your own limited knowledge is restricted to the time and the place and the experiences that you've had in however long you've lived. And if that's the only source of knowledge or information that you have to determine what's right and what's wrong and how the world works, guess what? You are bound to get it wrong many different times. I mean, even if you look around the world right now, there's no agreement among people about what's right and what's wrong. Certainly there are some baseline agreements among most people, which just tells us that we're created in God's image and we do have a conscience and we have a sense of right and wrong. But there are so many particulars that vary from different people, groups, and cultures. And not just in the world right now, but throughout world history. Even our own history here in the United States, we have had different opinions about what is right and wrong. It wasn't long ago that eugenics was being taught by the intellectual elites here in America and over in Europe, and it was being taught as something that was moral and good for humanity. Eugenics, of course, is um, trying to perfect the genetic line or the genetic quality of the human population, and the way that that would be done is by sterilizing people who were deemed genetically inferior. Now, I'm not talking about something that was popular 500 years ago. This is 100 years ago in Western civilization that people had these ideas that we need to perfect our genetic line and so let's sterilize against their will people who we deem to be genetically inferior. This is insane. But this was viewed by many as moral and good for humanity. Of course, 150 years ago, not that long ago, in the throes of the industrial revolution, very young children, children that are literally in our children's ministry right now, were being exploited for labor. They were being put into factories and coal mines and places like that, and they were working ungodly amounts of hours for almost no wages. They were put into some of the most dangerous situations because they were small enough to work on machines that adults couldn't or get into crevices in caves and mines that adults couldn't get into. And children were being put into work conditions like that rather than being educated, which of course put them for the most part into a perpetual cycle of poverty. Incredible. 200 years ago, it was acceptable to own other human beings and to treat them as property. And that's not just an American phenomenon or a Western phenomenon. That is a global phenomenon throughout history. And so what I would suggest to you is that it's not far-fetched to imagine that in 50 to 100 years, generations to come are going to look back on us right now with the same shock and bewilderment and disillusionment over the fact that today it is acceptable to murder children in the womb or to inject children with hormones or to surgically alter their body because they're confused about their gender my point is to say this that we are not good at being authoritative about what's best what's right what's wrong when we are restricting our knowledge base to ourselves And the Bible is crystal clear that we need a source outside of ourselves if we hope to really understand true goodness, true righteousness, and what's truly going to be best for humanity. We are incapable of detecting sin or hating it. Tim Keller, author and pastor, writes this. He says, fear of God and self-understanding grow or diminish together. So as you fear God, you grow in self-understanding. As you refuse to fear God, you diminish in self-understanding. You're blinded, you're deceived. And this ignorance and this self-deception leads to ungodliness. It has to. Verse 3 puts it this way, The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. Notice here that the wicked are corrupt in both words and works. They're corrupt in both speech and in action. He writes that his words are deceptive. So he lies. And notice that although, as I just talked about, he is wise in his own eyes. In the previous verse, verse 2. Notice that he has actually ceased to act wisely and do good now in verse 3. So This person considers themselves to be wise. I've got it figured out. I I know the difference between good and evil and right and wrong, but David is saying that this person has actually ceased to act wisely and to do good. Romans 1.22 puts it this way, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And David here writes that his works are foolish and bad. And we can see this in decisions that are being made by those who are considered wise among us, even here in the state of California. When you look at the sex education curriculum that's been passed in our state for young children, some of this stuff is pornographic in nature. And it's teaching our children a very low view of something so beautiful and significant, namely sex. And it's encouraging children to participate in behavior sexually that can actually be very destructive to them. We can see this also, we were talking about this again with Joe and Aaron yesterday, we can see this also in legislation passed in our state that allows children once they're the age of 12 to have medical privacy from their parents, particularly in areas related to sexual activity, contraceptives, and even abortion. So that children, when they're 10, can be isolated from, or 12 rather, can be isolated from their parents in doctor's offices. And the doctors in certain areas don't have to share with parents what they're discussing with your minor child. Now friends, you will hear a certain level of wisdom in that kind of thinking from the people who legislate this way. But this is foolish and it's worse than that. This isn't just foolish, this is immoral, this is evil. The idea that a minor should be separated from their parents, the people who know them best and love them most, and should be talking about some of the most sensitive matters of their life with another adult who's generally a stranger. And that the parents would have no insight, no access to the nature of those conversations. It's crazy. And so the person being depicted in verse 3 is a person who, again, claiming to be wise, has ceased to act or ceased acting wisely and has stopped doing good. That's not to say they don't have good intentions, that's not to say they don't think that they're doing good, but it is to say that when we cut ourselves off of an authoritative standard for understanding what is truly righteous, what is truly good. We're going to get it wrong in many different ways over and over again. Finally, in verse 4, in this characterization of the ungodly, we see that this corruption is so deep-seated that it pervades their entire being. Remember in Psalm one, the righteous person is the person who meditates on the word of God day and night. They first get up in the morning and it's God's word. And then when they're laying on their bed at night, God's word is the last thing that they're thinking about. Well, notice the difference, the contrast now in verse four. As this person lies on their bed at night, they're not meditating on the word of God. It says that he plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good He does not reject evil. This person heads down a path that is not good. It says that he cannot or will not acknowledge and reject evil. So this depiction of the evil person shows us the root and the fruit of their wickedness. The root of it is an orientation of life. They do not fear God. They treat God as if he doesn't matter. And the fruit of that orientation is that they, a limited, finite creature have become their own functional God, determining what is true and false, what is right and wrong, good and evil. And their chances of seeing that clearly are so far-fetched that the only adequate word to use to describe it is blind. And this blindness leads to words and works that are out of step with true righteousness and the way of love out of step with a life that truly uplifts one's neighbor and serves them in love. Now, the shift happens in verse five. David gives this picture, this portrait of the ungodly, the person who does not fear God, and now he contrasts that with the character of God in verses five and six. He writes, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds, Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. So in contrast to the wicked of verses one through four, David writes that God is loving, that God is faithful, that God is righteous and just, and that God is the savior of his creation. Man and beast you save. He begins, of course, with this idea that God is, is a loving God, that he is filled with this steadfast love. He says that God's love extends to the heavens. This means that God's love is boundless, that God's love is unending. And he uses an important word here. It's translated steadfast love. We at Apostles Church have gotten very familiar with this Hebrew word because we've seen it many times in the Psalms. We saw it in the book of Ruth when we studied that last year. It's a Hebrew word, chesed. And chesed is rightly translated, steadfast love. But that word carries the idea of loyalty. And it carries the idea of an unending, unconditional, unfailing love. And David says that that's the kind of love that God has. Not only that, he talks about God's faithfulness. God is a promise keeper god never lies god is never deceptive god never over promises and under delivers okay he says what he means and he means what he says and every one of god's promises are sure and they're certain and they can be relied on how different is that from all of us even with the best of our intentions We are not always perfectly faithful. We say one thing and we do another, but God is not like that. And David here is celebrating the character of God. That God's love is perfect and it's unending. That God is faithful. That God never, ever breaks a promise. And lastly, God is just. We see the justice of God on display here. God's righteousness and judgments loosely refer to God's justice in the way that God deals with people. What David is saying here is that God is always fair. He's never impartial. God always makes sure that unrighteousness is punished and righteousness is rewarded. And like the mighty mountains, his justice is solid and it's secure. And yet, and I love this, like the ocean, the great deep, his justice is... Mysterious, and it's impossible to comprehend or fathom. These verses point us to the core tension in salvation that flows from the character of God. And it flows from this that God is loving and just. He's both. God is loving and just. And this creates a serious tension in the character of God when we think about salvation. Because when you think about salvation, if God is loving, and he is, then God would want to save everyone. But if God is just, and he is, then God could save no one. Let me say this again. If God is loving, God would save everyone. But if God is just, then God could save no one. Because all have sinned, all have earned themselves Not salvation, but judgment. And so this is the tension that presents itself in the character of God. And the apostle Paul wrestles with this, as do other biblical authors. But the great thing is that the gospel of Jesus Christ resolves this tension. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 3. Listen to what he says. This is Romans 3, starting in verse 23. Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's, what does it say? Righteousness. Generally, we think of the cross as this is showing God's love, and it does. But here Paul wants to say the cross was showing God's righteousness. Here's why. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. This is the sins of every believer in the Old Testament. But Paul says it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, there's his character, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So here's the important thing. The cross is not only a demonstration of God's love, but also a demonstration of God's justice. If God were to save people without the cross, then God would be unjust because God would be essentially sweeping our sin under the carpet. Our sin would never have been paid for. God would be unjust. But what God did through Christ at the cross is God took all of your sin and all of my sin and he didn't sweep it under the rug he took it and he placed it on the sinless one he placed it on the righteous one Jesus and Jesus bore the wrath of God for us so that every single sin of every single person who would ever trust in Jesus was not swept under the rug it was paid for by jesus therefore god could say i will treat you now as forgiven and loved and righteous because i treated jesus as if he was guilty and sinful and in doing that god is now just because every sin ever committed for believer was paid for in jesus and non-believer paid for themselves in eternity and he is just the justifier of those who put their faith in Jesus because we are forgiven in Christ. That was a mouthful. That's a lot. That makes people go, right? This is in, incredible. And Paul, he, he deals with this all through Romans. And this explains why when Paul gets to Romans eleven thirty three, even the brilliant Paul the apostle has to say this. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Paul wants to get to the end of all of this. He gets all deep in all this theology and he just says, God's wisdom is just so unbelievable. And his justice is as deep as the ocean. God's love is amazing. God's character is amazing. He is loving and he is just and he is perfect in all of his ways. And he is worthy of our worship. As Paul thinks about, or as David rather thinks about the character of God, he shifts his focus slightly in verses seven through nine, and he zeros in on the preciousness of God's love. Look at what he says in verse 7. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of of your wings. I love this shift because it's one thing to talk about God's love, but it is another thing to feel God's love, to experience God's love, to delight in God's love. Listen, dead religion gives way to vibrant relationship at this point. Dead religion gives way to vibrant relationship at this point. For David, the love of God is not just a a theological reality. The love of God is not just a doctrine to know and memorize and recite to a pastor so he can join the church. For David, the love of God is reality. It is an experience for him. He knows that he is the object of God's love and that is precious to him. He delights in it. It is more precious than anything else in David's life, that he is the object of God's love. And so all he can do right here in verse seven is move from thinking about the character of God into a place of praise and worship about how precious the love of God is. That David had tasted and seen and experienced the goodness of his God. That he knew what it meant to be the object of God's unconditional love love. And family, there are so many people who know an awful lot theologically about the love of God. They know John 3.16. Some of their favorite verses in the Bible are verses about the love of God, and they know it here. But they don't know it here. They, they, They think of God's love, again, as something they can talk about, something they can recite, something they believe in, but it doesn't capture their heart. They're not delighting in it. It's not precious to them. It's not the song on their lips. It's not the the wind in their sails. But for anybody who has experienced the love of God, that just can't be the case. This is everything to you. This is the most precious thing in the world to you that God loves you. And this is how David feels about it. And he wants to help you see this. He wants you to feel this as well. And so he's going to show us just how precious it is to be loved by God. He shows us four blessings in these verses that flow from being loved by God. Number one, because God loves us, he protects us. We see that in verse seven. Those who are in God's covenant love find refuge and safety and deliverance in him. There was a tragic and yet really powerful story in the news last week. You might have missed it because our news has so much tragedy right now in it, but there was a young father, only 21 years old, who was uh, visiting in Miami Beach, Florida, and he was in a restaurant with his one-year-old child, and a man walked in with a gun, and he was gonna shoot into this restaurant, and the father, jumped in front of his son and embraced, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't remember if it was a son or a daughter, but embraced his child, a one-year-old, and said as he was running to cover his child, essentially, don't shoot him, he's so young, or her, covers the child and gets shot multiple times in the back and dies. And is being hailed rightly as a hero for stepping in and protecting and saving his young child. And that's a beautiful and powerful depiction of the love of of a parent, of course, and also of sacrifice. And I bring that up because verse seven tells us that that's what God's love is like for us. Just as that young dad shielded his child and just as a mother bird shields her chicks from the wind and the rain, God protects his people Jesus, our Savior, shielded us from the wrath of God on the cross so that we would be protected. He absorbed all of the wrath of God for those who take refuge in him so that we would be protected, so that nothing, that no harm would come upon us. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. Because he loves us, he protects us. Second, because he loves us, he satisfies us. Look at verse eight, they feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Now your house could be a reference to the temple, but most people did not eat or drink in the temple. And so it's more likely that this is referring to the spiritual nourishment and the spiritual satisfaction that those who are in the love of God experience. Our deepest longing as human beings Is for love. That's the deepest craving of all of our hearts, is for love. This is why people look for love in all kinds of places and in all kinds of ways. Much childhood trauma is the result of children looking for love and acceptance. And as great and as satisfying as human-to-human love can be, it is never perfect and it seldom feels unconditional. And the reason for that is because human love is always flowing from, well, a human. And humans are sinful and humans are needy. But in contrast, the love of God is boundless. The love of God is unconditional. It is never withheld. It is never called into question. We are perfectly secure in the love of God. There's never the fear that if the real you comes out, God will somehow stop loving you. Guess what? God already knows the real you. God knows the realest you. God knows you better than you know yourself. God knows all of your past mistakes and he loves you. He knows all the secrets of your heart. He even knows the mixed motives that you have right now in following him. He even knows the doubts and the questions and the insecurities that you have in your faith. He even knows how little you love him in comparison to how much you ought to love him. And yet he still loves you. And get this, what's more, he even knows every time you're going to fail him over the rest of your life. Every time you're going to doubt his goodness in a trial. Every time you're going to look at his sin and say, you know what, in the moment, this is better than God. He knows all of that. He's done all the calculations and he still looks at you right now and he says, I choose love. Oh, how precious is your steadfast love, O Lord. There is something about a love like that that satisfies us at the deepest recesses of our hearts. That is the kind of love you need to get up every single morning. That is the kind of love that you need to sleep peacefully at night every single evening. That is the kind of love that you need to strengthen your self-worth when other people make you feel worthless. This kind of love is precious to those who have it. Next, because God loves us, he gives us life. In verse 9, he says, for with you is the fountain of life. Like a fountain is the source of water, David is saying God is the source of life. And this is true in two senses. Obviously, God is the source of your physical life. We read in Genesis 2, 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So God is the source of our physical life, right? He's the creator of all things. But God also gives humans spiritual life. And this is based on his love as well. Here's Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So spiritually, we were dead. But then in verse 4 of Ephesians 2, Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. God in his love gives us life, physical and spiritual. Finally, because God loves us, he gives us light. We see that at the end of verse 9. It's in his light that we have light. Do you remember how the wicked who don't fear God were marked by blindness in verses one and two? Well, now those who are in God's love, they see light. They have illumination. This underscores the earlier point that true perception, true seeing requires a source outside of ourselves. It's in his light that we are able to see light. And he gives it to us so that you and I can be people who actually see truth and beauty and wisdom in the world around us. Well, the final section, verses 10 through 12, is David now asking God something. It's a prayer to continue in God's love. David writes, oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to, to rise. So David ends this psalm with a request. He says, God, would you continue to give me, continue to give us your steadfast love? Let us just continue in it. He wants to bask in God's love like we bask in the sunshine for the rest of Of his life. Now, who are the objects of this love? Notice he says, continue your steadfast love to those who know you. Know you. This speaks of intimacy, this speaks of relationship. God's love is given to those, his steadfast love is given to those who know him, who have a relationship with him. Do you know God this morning? Do you have a relationship with God? God offers his intimacy. He offers relationship to all people. He extended his loving hand to you on the cross and you take hold of it by faith, by trusting in Jesus, by trusting in him to be your Lord and your God, by letting him lead you as a loving father. And as you do that, like we've talked about, you find life in him and you walk in his light. Here, David wants God's love and righteousness to continue for the upright in heart. And the evidence for David that God's love and God's righteousness continued with him would be that the wicked would not gain the upper hand over him. Rather, verse 12, the evildoers would lie fallen, thrust down, and unable to rise. Ultimately, as the appointed leader of God's people, David's enemies never got the upper hand over him. God would always thrust them down and give victory to his king. And through David's victory, all of God's people enjoyed victory over their enemies. And so it is for us who are in Christ. Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. One day, Satan, the demons, and everyone who treats God as irrelevant will be thrust down and unable to rise. And those who know him will live in the precious love of God and in his righteousness forevermore. And so I ask you once again, what about you? Do you know God? Do you trust him? Are you taking refuge in him so that you can find life, so that you can experience his love? If so, be encouraged today. God loves you with an unending love. God loves you with a perfect love. All of God's promises for you are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. But if not, if you have not put your faith in Jesus, if you couldn't describe yourself today as a person who is trusting in Jesus as your Lord and your God, change that today. God is offering his love to you. His love was demonstrated to you on the cross of Christ 2,000 years ago. And so God wants to take you this morning and he wants to bring you into relationship with him and make you the object of his love. Why in the world would you resist that? You don't have to, and we pray that you don't. Please pray with me.